0: be with you so we're in a uh, finishing a series today in um, titled finding faith short little series for four weeks and uh, over the course of these these four weeks we've been uh, we looked the first week we kind of considered like what is this process of seeking what what is that what is that about uh, and then the second week we looked at a, a guy named Thomas who ended up with a nickname doubting Thomas Um, And he interacts with uh, the disciples, see Jesus, but he isn't with them. And then he comes back, but Jesus is gone. And the disciples say to Thomas, hey, Thomas, you're not going to believe what we saw. And Thomas's response is, I don't believe it. Uh, And he says, unless I put my hand in his side, put my hand, my fingers in his scars, I won't believe it. I I won't believe it unless that that happens. Um, And then week three. So week two was uh, wrestling with this reality of doubt. And just how, how real that is and how much we could relate to doubting Thomas. And then week three, a struggling father who had a sick child. And, um, and we wrestled and considered the challenges of uh, expecting certainty, of, of wrestling with this idea of, of certainty. And this father um, who comes to, to Jesus with his sick son says, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. And uh, there's this recognition of, a, of, a, of, a, of a, a wrestling with what is it that I'm putting my faith in? What is it that I'm trusting in? What, what should I have confidence in? And so last week and over the last two weeks, we've looked at the fact that the word doubt, uh, it means to be of two minds. That's the actual definition of doubt, is to be of two minds. And then the definition of certainty is to be without a doubt. And so to be of two minds, Boy, that, that's what Doubting Thomas wrestled with. That is what uh, the, this father wrestled with. It's a, it's a reality of life on this earth is to occasionally feel like we are of two minds. And then along comes certainty and says you have to be without a doubt. You can feel the tensions, especially in our modern world. And over the last couple of weeks, we tried to wade into that a little bit about what's going on around us that has enhanced this sense of, of doubt. Well, doubt happens when one of our beliefs seem as if it is false. So you have these beliefs you're holding to, and then one, one morning you wake up or some situation happens. And, and you know, we said you know, there's a very varied, uh, varied numbers of things that, that can uh, stir this. It could be scientific. It could be suffering. It could be sexuality. Uh, th- th- those are three of the primary ones that happen in our current culture that cause us to start wrestling with, these beliefs that we have in, in, in God and who he is. And so we, we actually get to this place to where it's like one of our beliefs might actually feel like it's false. And, and maybe you can relate to that. That, that That's Thomas's uh, journey, it's, it's this father, uh, this struggling father. That doubt is part of the journey with Jesus and he wants to help us every step of the way. It's what we saw him interact with both the father and with Thomas. He, he meets them with incredible kindness. He doesn't rebuke them. He doesn't yell at them. He doesn't scold them for doubting. He actually wades into their doubt, and then he engages them with with clarity. Uh, So kindness and clarity. He comes alongside with gentleness, but he also offers a way forward, something that they can hold on to. So in the presence of doubt, man, that doubt can cause us to freak out. But last week, we looked at the fact that the expectation of certainty can set us up for failure. So today, as we've walked through this seeking doubt certainty today, what I want to explore, you know, it's over this series. We've been talking about faith and finding faith and cle- you know, specifically finding faith in, in Jesus Christ. And so today I want to say, uh, as we're exploring this saving faith, I want to try to clarify what exactly the Bible is inviting us to find. So we, we maybe we can relate very much to to, to doubt. Maybe we can relate very much to how much certainty has uh, made us feel fragile in what we believe. But wh- what is the Bible actually calling us to find? What is the Bible actually calling us to believe? How do we find it? What is it? What is the gospel uh, of, of Jesus? This, you know, this thing we call the gospel, the good news. What happens when we believe it? Well, we're going to use Paul uh, in, in this passage, in Acts chapter 9, his name is Saul. Uh, later on, his name is changed to Paul. So maybe you're familiar with Paul, who wrote a number of books in the Bible. The passage that you just heard read from Acts chapter 9 is about him. Uh, his name was Saul, and later on in, the, in that uh, account in the book of Acts, his name shifts over to Paul. And we're going to use that guy. We're going to use his personal faith journey uh, to take a look at what this saving gospel actually is. And look, as you think about Paul, and we're going to talk a little bit about Paul's background, Paul's story, it it probably won't be exactly like your journey. There might be pieces that you can relate to. There might be more than pieces. Maybe maybe there's a lot of Paul's story that you can relate to. But maybe you can't relate to any of it uh, much at all. But regardless, it still offers for us all the resources to explore and understand what the Bible is talking about regarding faith in Jesus, and so I invite you to, 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 to walk through this uh, with me. So I'm going to refer to him as Saul because in Acts chapter 9, he is referred to as Saul, but just to be clear, we are talking about the guy who wrote many books of the New Testament uh, and who often is, is referred to as, as Paul. So first, in Acts chapter 9, first couple verses, we see Saul's life before, before Jesus. Um, so in verses 1 and 2, uh, you just heard them read, uh, but you get in, you, you get some access into the way that Paul is living his life. What what got him here? So in those first verses, you see that he's pretty worked up. He's a, a pretty violent guy. Well, he, here's here's Paul's story from what we can piece together from the rest of the scriptures. Uh, Saul was he was born into a Jewish family, uh, and it was a Roman citizen. So. That was a little bit of a unique dynamic, and it's a good situation because uh, if you're a Jew and you're a Roman citizen, then you have some rights and some access that just a Jew that's not a Roman citizen wouldn't have. And so that was a little bit of a perk in his in his upbringing. Uh, He was a Pharisee. That means that he was a religious leader. Uh, He was intensely moral. He was conservative. Uh, there were a handful of, um, uh, of groups in Judaism or sects of Judaism, and uh, the Pharisees were one of the most conservative ones. And so Paul, Saul, was part of this group uh, called the Pharisees. Very, very moral, very, very uh, wor- you know, interested and committed to doing the right things and very conservative in their reading of the, of the Old Testament scriptures. Uh, as a young Jewish boy, uh, Saul stood out as a star student he was smart, gifted, highly trained. He was the best of the best. Uh, he tells a little bit of that story in one of his letters to a church in, uh, in 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 Philippi. And as he talks about his life, he's like, "Man, like I'm I'm not doing this to brag, but I am telling you, it's like I mean I'm kind of summa cum laude. Like I, like it's uh, I I aced the tests. Like I was t- kind of top of the heap, um, and uh, and I, I I excelled at. Um, understanding the Old Testament scriptures uh, about, you know, living a, um, uh, an obedient life. And look, every Jewish boy wanted to be a religious leader. It would kind of like, you know, a boy wanting to be in the M- in the NBA or in the NFL today. Uh, a boy back then, they all wanted to be Jewish boys, wanted to be religious leaders. A few weeks ago, we talked about this, that Jesus's disciples were all in their uh, early adulthood and they were fishermen. And they, they, none of them were religious leaders, which means that as the, the system of Judaism uh, unfolded, they didn't make the cut. And so up to a certain age, everybody got educated, but then only the best boys got to move forward. And Jesus's disciples ended up as fishermen. They, they didn't make the cut. Paul made the cut. Saul made the cut. Saul, Saul's the guy. And he's like, I excelled at this stuff. I was, I was gifted. I, because of that, I ended up being highly trained. And then as I got trained, I climbed the ladder within, in, within my, my group. I was the top of the top. Best of the best. And due to that status, man, he had a personal responsibility, a personal responsibility to promote Judaism and to defend Judaism. And Judaism had a, a few, th- I mean, they had a lot of rules and a lot of things, but they had a few things that were like untouchable. And one would be the law, one would be the temple, and Jesus has messed with those things. Je- Jesus has, has, has messed with their typical understanding of those things. So you could see how Jesus is touching the untouchables. Paul is at the top of the heap. He is the, the, mo- you know, the most committed of the committed and so he has a personal investment in this. He wants to stop the spread of Christianity. Just like other religious leaders, Saul hated Christians and was glad to do something about it. Uh, in, the pr- in, the pa- in a couple chapters before this, Acts chapter 7, we find out that Paul was in charge of the stoning that happens there. There's a guy named Stephen who is stoned to death. And we find out later pa- Paul was responsible for that. Pa- Paul was there and he, um, he was part of the, the death of, of Stephen. Uh, you see, in our in our text um, in, in chapter eight, verse three, it says that he was ravaging the church. Here in chapter nine, it says he is still breathing threats. This is verse one: still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. So Paul, who grew up in this incredible context of spiritual um, of, of Jewish uh, vitality and commitment, is now trying to destroy the followers of Jesus in verse 2 we find out that the high priest authorizes him he says to him here's what I want you to do I want you to have a further reach I don't want you to just do this this uh, um, pressure against Christians in Jerusalem I want you to reach beyond Jerusalem so go out there and get them and what we find is that he's going to go get the followers of the way is what he says you know, in, in, in Jesus's life, one time in John chapter 14, Jesus said, I am the way, the life and the truth. I, 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 that, that's what I am. I, I, I am all three of those things. And that was one of the names that the Christians received was followers of the way. And Paul in verse two says, I'm going to get them. I'm going to go go round them up. And he had authorization from the high priest to chase them down. So to Saul, Jesus's followers were a major problem. Can you relate to that? Can you relate to the fact that Jesus' followers are sometimes the problem? That you, you, you might look around and be like, man, these people, they are so full of themselves. They're so arrogant. They're so hypocritical. They say they're moral, but I see the way they treat people. They say they believe the Bible, but they don't believe the Bible. You know, your reasons might be different, but this idea of the followers of Jesus being a problem, uh, there's a lot of us that can relate to that. So for Saul, Jesus' followers were a major problem. To Jesus' followers, Saul was a major problem. And so there's this this tension that is existing between Saul and the Christians. Well, as Saul takes this letter that authorizes him, off he goes to chase down the people of the way, to chase down the disciples of the Lord, to chase down Christians. And he's on a road, uh, the road to Damascus. To go get Christians, to round them up, he says, "I want to bind them. I want to tie them up, men and women, anybody who's part of this movement. I want to tie them up, and I want to bring them back." That's what he says in verse two. He found any belonging to the way, men or women, that he might be bring them back to Jerusalem. Let's let's deal with this. Let's bring them to Jewish justice. We're gonna we're gonna you know solve this problem. And then what happens next? Verses three through nine. Boy. You, you probably could say it's the most famous conversion in church history. It's probably the conversion that's been talked about more than any conversion in the history of the world. It is this guy, Saul, coming face to uh, face with Jesus. He's, he's converted. That's the term that is often used. Now, you might hear that word converted or conversion, and it might make you really uncomfortable. Like, what, what, you know, what is going on? Like, Do I even need to be converted? Maybe you've seen the bumper stickers out there that say born okay the first time, meaning I don't need to be born again. I don't need to be converted to anything. I'm doing just fine. Do I even need to be converted to Christianity? Well, the answer in the Bible is yes. Yes, we do. Yes, we do need to be born again. Yes, we do need to be converted. Yes, we do need to be rescued. Yes, we do need to be saved. Uh, an- another famous conversion is found in John chapter 3 with a guy named uh, Nicodemus. And Nicodemus was also uh, a religious leader. He was also a Pharisee. He was also towards the top uh, of the rank. And he comes to faith in Jesus. But when in his conversation with Jesus, he says to Jesus, Really? I mean, h- how is this like, wh- what are you talking about? And Jesus says, you must be born again. Y- y- you must have new life brought into you. You must turn and, and trust in Jesus. You got to be converted. You got to be you got to be made new. So Luke uh, inclu- that's the author of the book of Acts. Luke includes he includes the story of Paul's conversion three times. You get it in chapter nine. You get it in chapter 22 and you get it again in chapter 26. So in just this this account of the early church which is what the book of Acts is. Jesus, in chapter 1, Jesus ascends, and the rest of the book of Acts is how the, uh, how the early church unfolded. And Luke finds it helpful to, to three times tell us how it is that Paul came to faith in Christ. Three times. And so, I mean, just by repetition, there's a reveal here that this is a significant sequence of events. It gets so much attention because it reveals stunning, undeserved grace. John Stott, uh, who is, uh, is no longer living, but he was a great uh, Anglican scholar, uh, Church of England, over in uh, lived in England, and, and this is what he said: Saul did not "quote unquote" decide for Christ. He was persecuting Christ. It was rather Christ who decided for Saul and intervened in Saul's life. Look, I just told you, Saul hated Jesus. Saul hated his followers. What did Jesus do? Jesus comes to him and literally knocks him off of his feet to get his attention. Luke says uh, in one of the other accounts in chapter 26, he says that a light flashed in chapter 26. It's it's the indication is that it's brighter than the sun and it knocked him over. He fell to the ground and it blinded him. Now, Now, think about what's happening Saul was supposed to take this letter of authority and go marching with all the authority and power into into Damascus to round up the followers of Jesus. But what happens in chapter 9? Instead of him marching with all of this power, he is instead led humbly and blind into Damascus, needing help from those same followers. So he went marching to Damascus, and he ended up being led into Damascus. He went to arrest the people of the way, and he's actually longing for the help of the people of the way. So Jesus interacts, Jesus comes and inserts himself into Saul's story. And so John's thought's not wrong. Saul did not decide for Christ, he was persecuting Christ. Jesus is the one that came and got Saul. That's true, but that can also be severely misunderstood John Stott goes on to say, Saul's conversion was neither sudden nor forced. So listen to John Stott's thoughts on this. It's not sudden. This is what John Stott says. This was was not Jesus and Paul's first rodeo. This was not their first interaction. In chapter 26, when Paul is telling his own story, he adds a detail. And he says that Jesus said to him, Saul... Why do you persecute me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. That 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 Paul says Jesus said that to me. Paul, why are you attacking me? Why are you why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. Now what is a goad? A, a goad was a sharp stick. It was used to to prod sheep. They they're going the wrong way and you would you, you know, sheep are dumb, and you had to poke them. You a pointed end, you poked that sheep, and you, you turned it in the right direction. It, 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 sometimes you had to hit them pretty hard. And so it would be this, this poke or this redirect. You're going the wrong way. You, know, you need to turn, turn the other direction. That's a goad. But what Jesus said to Paul was, it's hard for you to kick against the goad. And that idea of kick is in, in, in the Greek, it's in something called the present tense, which indicates that it's in process. And so a way to translate that would be, you keep kicking against the goads. Paul, how many times are we gonna do this? How many times are you gonna run into the pointed stick? How many times am I going to tell you you're, you're going down the wrong path? You're aiming at the wrong thing. You're persecuting the wrong group. You're trusting in the wrong thing. You're kicking against the goad. Jesus is saying to Saul, this isn't the first time. And Saul seems to be able to realize that. In other words, Saul is able to look back and see how God had been hinting and prodding well before the road to Damascus. We, we love the, the intensity of this interaction of Jesus and Paul, Saul on the road to Damascus. We love it. We love it. But Paul's like, it wasn't the first time. If I'm honest, there were lots of times where God tried to get my attention. Can you relate to that? There's an old phrase, the hound of heaven, <laughs> from an old English poem. The hound of heaven, God himself was after Saul. And he'd been after Saul. And so, yes, this is the climax. But God looks at Saul and says, you, you, you keep doing this. Are we going to keep doing this? Is this going to keep happening? Are you going to keep kicking against my direction? He probably heard Jesus teach. It's very possible. He definitely heard the rumors. He knew about the apostles and their teaching, what they claimed, how they spoke with power. And. Just remember, they, they, you know, everybody thought the apostles were rednecks. I mean, they had no education. They didn't know you know, they were they're unlearned men, and yet they were out there preaching these powerful messages. Certainly, Saul had heard about all that. Think about Stephen. He was there when Stephen was stoned. Well, if you go back and read Acts chapter 7, Stephen preaches a sermon. Saul was there for that. An incredible sermon. And it's a retelling of the story going back into the Old Testament and telling the story of God's work in the world from the perspective of Christ. Is it possible that Saul heard Stephen preach that sermon? And while Saul still oversaw the stoning of Stephen, those, weir- those words, they didn't leave easily. They kind of got a little deeper than Saul would have liked. Maybe they were starting to get his attention. Could it have created some doubts for Saul? Maybe there's more to this Jesus story than I thought. It's really possible that Stephen, Stephen's sermon was one of the ways that God was drawing Saul to himself, one of the goads that God was using to move Saul towards Jesus. The point is, Saul was resisting it, but God did not give up on him. And this time in Acts chapter 9, when God meets him on the road to Damascus, he's, he's, Jesus says, We're going to keep doing this. I've been getting your attention time and time again. You keep kicking against the goads. Are we going to keep doing this? Remember the center point of Jesus' life and death? I mean, the center point is this principle of loving your enemies. It's what Jesus does, Jesus came to save sinners. Jesus came to save the people that were crucifying him. He came to save the people that hated him. It's a central idea. And so what it, like this is a perfect picture. That's exactly what Jesus does here. He is rescuing the guy that's persecuting him. That's what he says to him. Why are you persecuting me? Jesus is love for his neighbors. Jesus is love for his enemies. Jesus is love for those who hate him. It's, it's central to the gospel, and it's beautiful. Can you see God's pursuit of you? Can, can you look back and say, whoa, I, I know God's been after me. I know he's been so kind, and the goad hurts sometimes, but I can look back and realize it was for my good. He was trying to get my attention. This isn't as sudden as I thought it was. He's been after me. Maybe you're at church here today, and you're like, this all just seems to be happening so fast. Look, look, I bet you if you take a moment, you're going to see a lot of instances in your life where God's been been graciously and persistently chasing you. So not sudden and then not forced. Jesus still gave Saul a choice. Jesus asked questions. Paul asked questions. In, In chapter 22, Paul actually says, what, what, you know, what shall I do? So there's this intensity of interaction, and yet there's still, it's still an invitation, an invitation to Christ. You know, Part of the way that God designed humans was for them to have agency, for them to have will, for them to be able to make decisions. Coming to Jesus doesn't make you less human. It makes you more fully human. Jesus is not forcing you. Like, look, you literally have it backwards. Sin enslaves. The gospel... Frees you. It liberates you. Sin enslaves you, it imprisons you. The gospel liberates you, it sets you free. Can you see God's invitation to you? The invitation is come over here. Come with me. All these times that he goaded Paul, all of these other interactions. He could have just crushed Paul. He could have just put him in a headlock and forced him. But God's grace and his kindness was a constant invitation, a constant chasing. Putting it in front of Paul, constantly saying, look at this, see this. Do you hear this? Grasp this. Can you see God's invitation to you? Well, if that's what the journey of like coming to faith is, it's this sense of like recognizing that God's been after you. It's this recognition that you need to be converted. You need to be born again. Paul, you know, the, Saul means Jesus. But what is it that Saul believed? He he runs into Jesus, but what is the message? What is it that, that literally changed Saul's entire life, including his name in just a little bit of time? Well, we don't get all the details in chapter nine of Acts. But we do throughout Paul's life. One of the words that comes up in Paul's various writing is the word mystery. And he uses that word in Ephesians chapter 3, mystery. Paul says it's his job to proclaim a mystery. Now, what does the word mystery mean? When we hear that word mystery, it it actually conveys something that is almost the opposite of what Paul meant by it. When, When we hear the word mystery, you know, this is what we think of. We think something that's hidden from us, and it's our job to figure it out. Over the last couple years, we've gone to a couple mystery dinners, you know, murder mystery dinners. And the whole night, your job is to try to figure out who it is that was the murderer. You know, you, maybe you love thrillers and you like watching movies or, you know, uh, you know mysteries and, and you're watching the movie. And the whole du- the whole time during the movie, you're all these twists and turns. And I love I love those kinds of movies, all these twists and turns. And you're trying to figure out what, what who, who did it, who is really the culprit here. When, when the truth is hidden from you till the end, and it's our job to figure it out. Like, that's what we think of when we think of a mystery. There's something hidden, and it's our job to discover it. But the Greek word, especially as Paul uses it, means almost the exact opposite. It means not something hidden that you have to discover. A mystery is something revealed by God because you would never discover it. You, you would never come up with it because it is so counterintuitive you would never come, uh, come to that conclusion. You would never go through some process of reasoning and come up with that idea. In other words, a mystery is something revealed to you that's shocking, that goes completely against anything that you would have guessed. The gospel of Jesus, the gospel of grace, salvation by grace, it's called a mystery for that reason. It's the greatest mystery. Now, just for an example, contrast that with the law. Of the Old Testament the law of God it it, it, are are the Ten Commandments ever referred to as a mystery no never is the golden rule you treat others as you want to be treated is that ever called a mystery no they're not called mysteries because the gospel is not if you live a good life and obey the Ten Commandments and obey the golden rule then God will bless you and he will heal your prayers and he'll take you to heaven that's that's not the gospel that, that, that is not the gospel at all. That's not a mystery. That's exactly what you would think. If I obey good enough, if I do enough good things, then the God of heaven will give me a thumbs up and I'll get to be with him. That, that's what's logical. That's not a mystery. That's what we would assume. And yet, the gospel is fundamentally different than that. What is the gospel? It is the good news of Jesus' rescue of sinners. The, the gospel is that the Son of God came to earth and triumphed through weakness and suffering. Did anybody see that coming? That he won through losing. Did anyone see that coming? That he gained everything by giving everything away. He overcame your sin and my sin by taking it on himself. This is the message of the gospel, and it's a scandal, and it's a shocker, and it's a mystery. It's what took over Paul's life as a result of this scandalous, mysterious gospel, when you actually believe it and you become a Christian, Martin Luther, 500 years ago, said, here's what happens to you. You are simultaneously a sinner and a saint. Simultaneously. Your heart still bends away from God. You still do things that are contrary to God's good design. And yet, because you've run to Christ, you're actually considered a saint that you're actually welcomed into the family of God, that you've been washed of your sins. You're simultaneously a terrible sinner and yet absolutely loved, justified, and accepted in God's sight. Nobody saw that coming. It's a mystery, and it's a mystery that took over Paul's life. It's not what you would ordinarily think. It goes against all of our instincts. In spite of how bad you are, in spite of how bad you are, you can be saved by sheer grace. You can be saved because somebody else did it for you. It makes absolutely no sense to the heart. But once you see it, it is so stunning. You know, Peter tells us in First Peter that the angels cannot get enough of it. The angels who've been around a lot longer than us, they see this thing and they're like, can we see it again? Can we talk about that more? What is, what, what is going on? How in the world are you kidding me? Is that for real? You know, the fact that we're not stunned by it, that should say something to us. You know, some of you know my own story. I, I, I grew up around around Christianity. My dad was a pastor. My grandfather's a pastor. Uh, and so I, I don't know a day of my life where Jesus was not prominent, where the Bible was not prominent, where the local church was not prominent. I literally do not have a single memory in my in my entire life where that wasn't part of the story but about 14 years ago the gospel broke into my life like it never had before and you know the way I describe it is it went from black and white to full color that this gospel that was kind of like a set of facts became this beautiful story of a rescue of Matt Heron there's an author named Jared Wilson and he, he, tells the, he tells his own journey of the gospel, of gospel understanding like this. He said, just imagine that you're, you're in a car, and your car breaks down, but it breaks down a, a, at, a, uh, at a railroad crossing. And so your car is sitting on the railroad tracks, and it breaks down, and it will not start up. And you're trying, and you're trying, and you think it might turn over, but it won't turn over, and it won't turn over, won't turn over. And then eventually you, you realize a train is coming down the tracks, and it's coming right at you. And you think, oh man, I gotta get this car started. And you're trying everything you got. You're trying your best, trying all your tricks, and you cannot get the car to start. Eventually you realize, this train is gonna hit me. And so you try to get out of the car, but your seatbelt is stuck. And eventually you, you, you can't get out of your seatbelt, and the train is gonna slam into you. And just before the train slams into you, something hits you from the back and throws you out of the way of the train. And it's a truck. And this truck knocks you out of the way of the train, but the train crushes the truck and destroys the truck and kills everyone in the truck and you get out of your car and you're standing there and you can't believe that someone would do that for you you can't believe that with all of your efforts you couldn't save yourself but someone else would give their life to save you and you're standing there and you're just absolutely stunned that someone would give that for you and as you're standing there thinking what to do next you 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 hear something and you realize that your kids had gotten in the trunk of your car And they were playing in the trunk. And not only did did that person in that truck save you, but he saved a, a whole bunch more. And there's this beauty to the rescue of Jesus that we have just barely tasted. It's better than we can imagine. And it just keeps getting better and better. And like the angels, we can say, can we talk about that more? Can we gaze upon that one more time? Can we look again? Because it's so amazing. You know, Martin Lloyd-Jones tells this illustration and he says, if your friend came up to you and said, hey, I've been looking for you, I was over at your house and the postman showed up and he had a, a bill that was due and uh, he said he's not leaving until it's paid, so I just, I just paid it for you. Martin Lloyd-Jones says, you have no idea how to respond to that friend unless you know how big the bill was. Because if the bill was just over postage and it was, you know, 15 cents, then you'd you know, give him a fist bump and say, thanks for doing that. But if it was the IRS who had hunted you down and it was $500,000, you would fall at his feet crying. What do you think Jesus has done for you? What, what do you think this rescue is? It's the rescue of the ages. And that's why we fall down at his feet and worship him. You know, the idea that we need, that we need rescued. My, Mike Whitmer is gonna be preaching here in a couple weeks. And, and one of my favorite illustrations from Mike Whitmer is he he's he's married. And so just in, in, imagine that you're married and you're walking on a path beside a river and your wife is with you. And as you're walking down this path, your wife falls in the river and you realize she can't swim. And so you dive in the river in May in Traverse City. And it's freezing cold because this is a dire situation. You dive in there and you rescue your wife and you get her out. And what, what, what's going to happen? Man, you are a hero and especially in our city that's front page news for the record eagle man you are you are a hero okay that your your wife fell in she was in dire straits it was a, a tragic situation you rescue her out that makes you're, you're a hero but if you were walking down that same path and you looked at your wife and you just said honey i love you so much and then you just jumped in the river you wouldn't be a hero you'd be an idiot When when Jesus went to the cross, Jesus didn't just go to the cross to show us what love is or to model for us some life of sacrifice. He went to the cross to rescue us in the only way that matters. And that's why he's the hero of the entire story. These kinds of realizations about the beauty of the gospel, they just keep coming. They're endless. Paul, in one of his letters to a church, he says it's like an endless, like every turn, there's another beautiful thing. There's another glory to consider. We haven't even scratched the surface. You might say, man, oh, I don't know, man. I don't think I'll ever understand the gospel. It's so wonderful. I don't think I'll ever understand it. Well, look, if you don't, if you think you do understand it, that's the best evidence in the world that you don't. But if you're saying, man, I'm just starting to maybe get... That's the best evidence that you actually are. You know, we we sometimes say that the gospel is like a swimming pool. It is so shallow that anyone can get in. But it is so deep that no one can touch the bottom. This, This is the beauty of the gospel message of Jesus who came to rescue sinners in the only way that matters. The gospel is crazy. It's scandalous. It's a mystery. And it has been revealed to you you might be thinking, how can we be so confident that it's true? You know, we've tried to bump into this over this series, the idea that the the gospel is, you know, that that truth is subjective. Our culture believes that truth is subjective. You know, there's an illustration that's used sometimes that that it's like, you know, blind men running into an elephant. Uh, All the world religions are like individual blind men. They've run into this elephant and one person runs into the tusk and they feel the tusk and they're like, oh, truth is like a spear. And then another blind man runs into the, t- into the trunk, and they're like, no, no, truth isn't like a spear, truth is like a hose. And then someone else runs flat into the side of the, of the elephant, and they say, no, truth isn't like a spear, it's not like a hose, it's like a wall. And then another blind man runs into the leg of the elephant and says, it's not a, tr- it's not a spear, it's not a hose, it's not a wall, it's a pole. And all of these blind men are arguing with each other because no one can see the elephant. And we've all got partial truth, and so we should just stop saying that we have objective truth. It's a good illustration. You can relate to it. I I can relate to it. But do you know what the Bible is saying? The Bible is saying that the elephant talked. That the elephant said, here's what I am. It's not blind men running into the elephant. It's the elephant coming to blind men and saying, this is what I am. This is who I am. This is the truth. This is the gospel that you are invited to believe. It's an invitation to actually stop trusting yourself and all of your self-salvation projects and trusting Jesus to rescue you. The Bible is shouting to us that it's been revealed on the pages of the Bible, and it is our invitation to take the step of faith to believe that that is true. How do you find out a mystery? It has to be revealed. And the Bible is shouting to us that it has been revealed. Look, the Bible does not promise to answer, answer all of your questions, but it does promise to answer the most important one. And that is, how, is how, how in the world can I be rescued from all of this and be restored to the God who created me? And the answer is Jesus. All you have to do is come. All you need is need. We, we come to this table every week. And one of the great gifts for the Christian in coming to the table is to remember again our one and only hope. That if Jesus did not do what he did, then all the stuff we're talking about is empty. And so we come and we take this bread and we take this cup and we, we remember again. Jesus said, Do it until I come the second time. Remember, rehearse, trust. If you're here and you're not a Christian, there's some prayers in the bulletin that'll be on the screen. And we invite you to to actually take that step of trusting in the rescue that Jesus provides. If our servers will please come, let's pray. God, thank you for this story of Saul from uh, 2,000 years ago of uh, a guy who was pretty stubborn, resisted and resisted and resisted. And God, we thank you for your persistence, for your chasing after him, for your willingness to to not quit on stubborn people. I would be one of those who'd be in trouble. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for revealing to us the mystery of the ages, for answering for us the most important question that we'll ever be faced with. Thank you for the person and work of Jesus who came to rescue sinners of whom we are. So thank you for your salvation news. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.